Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. I'm Lori Adams-Brown, and this is a podcast for those who are different and want to make a difference. Today we have on the show Dr. Sandra Glan, who is a professor of media arts and worship at Dallas Theological Seminary, and she has a very exciting book that I was able to get a pre-release copy of, and I know many of you have been very excited about this book as well. Her book is called Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. And if you haven't heard of Artemis of the Ephesians before, and if you've ever read any parts of the New Testament and had some questions, especially in the book of Um, Ephesians, but also in any of the other books where there were some strange verses about women, it just so happens that maybe it has something to do with Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, Dr. Glan is uh, a professor of media arts and worship at Dallas Theological Seminary, where her emphases are first century backgrounds related to women, culture, gender, and the arts. She's authored or edited more than 20 books, including Vindicating the Vixens, Earl Grey with the Ephesians, Sanctified Sexuality, and Sexual Intimacy and Marriage. So Dr. Glenn is coming on the show today to talk about this very exciting book that I've been able to read most of at this point. It's very um, scholarly. I've had to stop several times and look things up. I've been very intrigued and it sent me on some rabbit trails of researching some other stuff. And there's just some incredible surprises in there that um, have been a lot of fun to read about. But I'm very excited to have on the show today, Dr. Sandra Glan. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's so exciting to get to know you and get to talk a little bit about your book today. Welcome to the World of Difference podcast, Dr. Sandra Glan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about this book. Thank you so much for the pre-release copy that I've been underlining, reading, (laughs) mouth open in Phil's coffee on on the weekends. Wow. Yeah. Like, what is happening? Sitting poolside and being like, oh my gosh, does anybody know this? (laughs) Very excited about some of the stuff that you have in your book and um, getting into all the archaeology and research and what other people said and controversies around it. I was so here for it and was really just thrilled to know that somebody was digging further into Artemis of the Ephesians because as I was on a journey many years ago back in Singapore, trying to understand more deeply some verses in the Bible around women and things that are said in the epistles and things that kind of got weaponized against me, I couldn't get away from Artemis of the Ephesians. And so um, I first just want to say thank you for writing this book. I do hope it gets into a lot of hands. And then I want to ask you, why did your journey start around her? What was the fascination and reason you started to research her? That is a great question. So my husband and I um, wanted a large family. And I'm the fourth of five and I love being in a large family. And so when we hit the brick wall of infertility and pregnancy loss, it was shocking. And I mean, we hit it hard. We had 
three years of no success and seven early losses and an ectopic pregnancy, then three failed adoptions, which all spanned about a decade. And we finally had the successful adoption of our adult daughter. But during that time, it was a huge spiritual crisis for me because I had picked up teaching that a woman's primary calling was motherhood, um, marriage and motherhood, and even some teaching that uh, men are made in the image of God and women image God as their little as their satellites to men, and you know reach their ultimate fulfillment in motherhood. And so you can imagine. Uh, it's like, I, I'm on board with that and it's not happening. So then it's like, why God, if this is your desire? And so I had to go back to start over with scripture and ask where I picked up that idea. And you're like, what would that have to do with Artemis? Well, the section of the Bible where people have often quoted this ideal motherhood uh, mentality comes out of the phrase, she will be saved through childbearing that the apostle Paul writes in his letter. It's a personal letter to Timothy, his mentee, whom he's left in Ephesus. First uh, Timothy 1.3 says, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. So then that raises the question, okay, what is Paul's concern that he's uh, talking about childbearing and what's going on in Ephesus? Well, we get a big clue from the book of Acts. You know, like, stay with me. It sounds like a treasure hunt now, right? What's right. Where, where city? Ephesus. Okay, what's going on? And Acts 17, there are two major stories set in Ephesus. The first relates to magic workers and how they come to Christ and they have the first bonfire of the vanities and they, they burn thousands and thousands of dollars worth of magic books. And then the second little vignette in that same chapter relates to Artemis of the Ephesians, Again, economically, the silver workers are concerned that the Apostle Paul's ministry is cutting into their profits because mm -hmm. people are coming to Jesus and they're not buying the statuettes out of silver or souvenirs. And so yep. it's hurting the economy. And we read about, you know, a two hour disturbance where people are yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So I went to Ephesus on a, on a trip and had heard uh, that yes, Artemis was a factor, but she was a fertility goddess. And then that was sort of discredited because they said, well, that teaching was actually fourth century and really Artemis didn't have anything much to do with it. So I'm on this trip, I'm in Ephesus and I'm seeing the story of Ephesus and that's contradicting the sort of diminishing of it. I'm seeing a connection to Artemis and I'm seeing a connection to Artemis and the Amazons in the stone and our guide is telling us that this is within a century of Paul. So when you go to Ephesus, they'll give you the 7th century BC through the 4th century AD. I, I call it a synoptic Artemis. All <laughs> I needed to know was who was she when Paul was there? Because even if yep. she started out as a mother goddess, if that had changed in seven centuries, I needed to know. So this project, which is nobody's mother, uh, yep. Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity in the New Testament. I had to look at who does Homer say she is? Who do they start out thinking she is? But then narrowing down the data to what do people in the first century or within a century of Paul saying, I had to look at the inscriptions or the writings in stone. I had to look at the papyri, the other writings. Mm -hmm. We're looking at coins, looking at statuary, anything that narrows it down. And my conclusion is 
she's nobody's mother, which hence the title. Instead yeah. of being a fertility goddess, she's the exact opposite. She is the goddess of midwifery. And all through the letter that Paul writes to Timothy, he's saying things about Timothy's context, like don't touch, don't taste, don't marry. He's telling the young widows, I want you to get married and have children, um, right. which is the opposite of what he tells the Corinthians, right? The Corinthians, right. Yeah. So again, you're like, uh, that probably, you know, Paul's too smart to contradict himself. It's not that Paul's confused or doesn't know about gender. It's Paul has different advice in different yep. social contexts. And yes. whereas it appears that the Corinthians were probably a little oversexed and needed to value yes, uh, we have clear evidence of that. Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. The people in Ephesus were like virginity central. Now that's not to say there weren't lots of married people there. It just means that mm-hmm. if you tend to be liked what you worship. And if she, you know, yep. her temple is in Ephesus. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. It's considered the star, you know, the mm-hmm. most the most incredible gem in the crown mm-hmm. of those seven. And uh, it's said that the reason her first temple built, uh, burned three centuries earlier was she couldn't be in the same place at the same time as uh, Alexander the Great being born. And she had to go be a midwife for him. And therefore, she couldn't protect her first temple from burning. So again, that's three centuries before Paul, but it's somebody in Paul's century saying, here's why she couldn't be there. So apparently, they were still seeing her as a midwifery goddess. It's yeah. really easy to confuse midwifery with fertility, it but is. it's not the yeah. same, right? They're not. Being a doula no. or a midwife is not the same as being a mother who's delivering children. Oh, absolutely. Or an IVF doctor versus yeah, a doula or a, exactly. a midwife. Yeah, very different professions. I mean, they're both related right. to women, but that's, you know, and <laughs> that's that, where I guess we just lump it all together, right? Yes. But one of the f- fun parts of your book that I was just like, oh my gosh, when I read it in Phil's coffee, I don't, I, Literally, my husband was there with his like headphones on reading his deeply spiritual book. I'm like, I have to stop you. It's like Wonder Woman in the Amazons. Like, oh my gosh, they uncovered these graves. And like, yeah, like Kazakhstan. I even told my son because he's a big uh, MCU nerd and like knows all the facts. And we actually just went to see the uh, Blue Beetle DC movie, which, you know, also Wonder Woman's in that universe. And I was like, Wonder Woman is real. Her people are real. There's these greys and they were varied. And there's like a woman who was riding horseback and her legs are like bent. And there's all these like weapons. So tell us more about the Wonder Woman, Amazon and Artemis connection. So who knew? I was raised thinking Wonder Woman was mythological. But the first thing that happened was as I'm reading these old sources, I'm noticing they didn't think of it that way. Like they talked about the Amazons and said things like they camp out around her temple. They worship her. Like they're, they believe in them. And then as it turns out, if you read both Smithsonian Magazine and the National Geographic, uh, there have been Amazon women found uh, in the country of Georgia around the Black Sea, uh, buried with weaponry. And so, you know, and then I started noticing the pathetic reason that we said they didn't exist is because women don't do warfare. So we're looking. <laughs> Hello. Right. Yeah. So our gender Deborah, bias kept us looking. Yeah, exactly. The tent, tent peg, peg in, in the, the head. head. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. So you remind me of a t-shirt I saw that said nail it like JL, but I digress. <laughs> anyway, uh, Wonder Woman is today in the West is a friend to women. She is based on the Diana slash Artemis of 
the ancient world, but there's a huge difference from her and the Artemis of the Ephesians. And that is Artemis of the Ephesians was as likely to take out women as she was men. Uh, mm. There's a story where the goddess Niobe has 10 kids and, you know, Artemis's mom only had twins, Artemis and Apollo. And so the kids are like, nanny, nanny, baby, our mother, you know, is more fertile than you. So Artemis is like, hey, you take the boys, I'll take the girls. And they kill them with their arrows. They kill all 10 children. Lots of evidence of Artemis being incredibly ruthless. So she might have been the inspiration for Wonder Woman, but she is not as nice as Wonder Woman. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take Wonder Woman over Artemis any day. Yes, you will. Gal Gadot. That's right. So you also talk about in your book, there's a little bit of a heated debate. Um, around a book that was written before by this husband and wife couple, the Krogers, I Suffer Not a Woman. Yeah. So tell us what's the heated debate all about with their research? Sure. So the Krogers are the founders of Christians for Biblical Equality. And their argument is that Artemis is a fertility goddess and that Paul has fertility on his mind. And that's why he's saying a woman will be saved through childbearing. And we get some of that based on Jerome, which is a fourth century source, because if, if you see a picture of Artemis of the Ephesians, she is a little different from the generic Artemis. It's, it's the same backstory in the same way that, you know, Barbie can be the president and an architect, but uh, totally. she might dress yeah. differently, right? <laughs> right. And, and so in Ephesus, she has these bulbous appendages and Jerome describes her as multi-breasted. He, now he is several centuries out from Paul. And, you know, he can't Google it like we can. And so (laughs) he misunderstands what he's looking at. And Mm. so the Kragers only really had that to go on. And that's the logic was sort of uh, bulbous appendages equal breasts. Breasts are related to nurturing, mothering. Therefore, she's a mother goddess. And so the Kragers just got murdered in the reviews. And that was really the end of the discussion for a lot of people, Mm. including myself. Mm. What? The problem was, was they were right in assuming that Artemis was on Paul's mind. They were just Mm. wrong about the data and what it told. But fast forward 30, 40 years now, I can look at inscriptions that they didn't have access to. I can, and I, I have it in translation now, which I didn't even have 10 years ago when I started. I had to do all my translation work and now I can pick up a book. It's an expensive book and it's a thick book, but still... I can, in about an hour and a half, read every inscription about women in the city of Ephesus that we have. And so it's much easier for me to see in one place, oh, this isn't, this actually isn't fertility. The the historians were right. But where they were wrong is they just eliminated Artemis altogether. Artemis Mm -hmm. was on Paul's mind. She's the reason he was kind of thrown out of town early or decided to depart for his safety early. And uh, she was on his mind. It's just that Artemis had a different persona than what the Kragers were thinking. And so, and this is where my research is focusing on and why the book is called Nobody's Mother, because the idea was that she was a mother that was discounted. Nevertheless, Artemis was on Paul's mind. And we see lots of little words in First Timothy that kind of give a nod to her and her cult. And, you know, the the subtext is Jesus is better, okay? The average woman, her number one fear is childbirth. It's the number one cause of death for women. Whereas for men, the number one cause of death is war. For women, any woman that you know who had a C-section, dead. (laughs) 
any mm-hmm. women that you know that needed hospitalization and extra fluids or, you know, preeclampsia, all that, you died. And so everybody yeah. had family members who had died in childbirth. So, mm-hmm. and we all know fear is a very strong motivator. So when a person is considering coming to Jesus or has come to Jesus, if, if it's a woman, she's like, what do I do with this? Because if I'm wrong, not only do I hack off the most powerful goddess, but she's going to want to take out the whole city of Ephesus if I hack her off. So it's a very communal culture, right? Their honor, shame community as, as opposed yeah. to our Western individualism. So you're not just afraid that you're wrong. You're afraid that if you're wrong, it could bring disaster on your community. So as a new believer, especially, you're really terrified. This is the big test of, will I sneak to the temple and leave an offering because I'm getting ready to have a baby? And it it appears that Paul is basically saying, Jesus is better, Jesus is stronger. And I think that what he is saying is women will be saved, i.e. they won't die in childbirth. He's not talking about every woman. He's not talking Mm -hmm. about for all time. He's talking about in Timothy's ministry, when he has taken on a false God, uh, that Christ is going to show himself the ultimate midwife in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember when I was in college, I think it was my freshman year, I had a friend who asked me, what does that first mean? Women are saved through childbearing. And I was like, I don't know. Never heard a sermon on that. That doesn't make any sense. There's got to be more, but I don't know what it is, you know? And also, like, I don't see any altar calls where they're saying, hey, women, come forward and be saved through child. Like, it can't be salvation, right? Like, that's okay, weird. You're funny. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not only can it, that doesn't make sense, no, but then yeah. you're like, well, then why is why are we even hearing about, like, Philip's virgin daughters? Why are they not being told, hurry up and go marry? Because, you know, you're going to hell if you don't have kids. Uh, there's yeah. that. But also, Paul teaches salvation by grace through faith constantly. Mm-hmm. It is He is completely consistent on that. The, the only way is through Christ, and, like, and it's through grace. It's not by works. And so it would completely contradict everywhere else that Paul's talking for him to, to say, well, other people are saved by the you know, death, resurrection of Christ, <laughs> but women, they're going to be they're saved, saved for through having babies. Bearing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so weird. It it sounds like a cult, basically, yeah, it right? It's not okay. <laughs> this right. is not who we are. And so I think that, you know, for me in seminary when we learned about good hermeneutics is when you come across yes. a passage that goes, Wait, what? You just stop in your tracks, like something's yes. not okay here. And then you're like curious. What, you know, how does other scripture interpret scripture? What are the verses around it? How do we take this in the whole context of scripture? Well, it can't mean (laughs) women are saved in their souls through bearing children. It has to be something else. And that's when, you know, you go into Artemis of Ephesians and you find out, oh, because if you have good cultural exegesis and you understand what was going on in the culture at the time, you know, anybody might read an email you or I send or even hear this podcast at some point and like, many, I don't know how long podcasts will be around, but if it's like multiple generations in the future or certainly 2000 years from now, they may not pick up some of the nuance of our culture in the United States in this day, 2023. And that's what, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to have that curiosity when we read scripture, especially when you read something and it goes against everything you've ever thought. So that's why books like yours are so, so helpful. But, you know, throughout Christian history, the church fathers, the church mothers, sometimes we'll read things in our, you know, church history that today feel 
off and disturbing. And so you mentioned, and this is something we know very widely and broadly that people write about, but Erasmus said a man was impervious to Eve's temptation. Aristotle saw women as defective. Augustine said Satan tempted the weaker one. So when we think about these church fathers who may have gotten a lot right and said things that are just make us feel ick, Mm -hmm. um, explain this foundation even that led you know, to the Danvers statement that we kind of um, hear people talk about now? Yeah, so great question. I think one of the reasons we're Protestants uh, in terms of our view of the Pope uh, is that it gives us the ability to say, I can love Augustine. (laughs) I'm I'm not saying a, a, a Roman Catholic can't say that. I'm just saying we don't have any authority other than scripture that is infallible. And so Augustine says wonderful, wonderful things about many things. I wish more of us would adopt his view of politics. He's got great (laughs) stuff on politics. But when it came to women, our brother Augustine had a very broken sexual history. And Mm -hmm. he's not our best source on understanding men and women. And we're allowed to discern those things, right? And so what happened was a lot of church fathers, not all of them, but a lot of them had very Greek influences coming out of Aristotle and their view of women. A woman was basically an undercooked man, that the man was the ideal. And so she's sort of moist and, and, you know, think of it as an undercooked cookie. You know, he's the perfectly (laughs) cooked cookie, but if you take it out a little early, some of us like a mushy center, but you know, most people (laughs) don't. And so a woman is a defective man, basically in this paradigm. And so the Danvers statement is the beginning of the uh, official complementarian view. And that is we're not going to call ourselves traditionalists anymore because the tradition is actually uh, in some cases saying women aren't even made in the image of God. And we acknowledge that women are made equal with men there. You know, God made men and women uh, with beautiful differences, but they're, but they're equal. And, So the Danvers statement was an attempt to move away from the term traditionalism to describe this view of men and women and acknowledge that both the social sciences and scripture itself affirms the essential equality of men and women made in the image of God. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, You know, when we get into books like these um, in our 2023 United States of America and in Protestant evangelical circles, you know, we're going to bring up things like complementarianism, egalitarianism. Some people use the phrase mutuality, but, you know, I don't know, even when I was in seminary in the 90s, those weren't really terms that were thrown around as much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like kind of where things are today. And then some things have become very hyper complementarian. Some things yeah. are, are just very difficult and women um, really are unsafe even in some spaces because of some of these theologies. So as you, um, as a scholar, as you've looked back at what was going on in the early church, how you view what Paul was trying to say um, even how Jesus was treating women right. in the midst of cultures like where they were desperate just to survive childbearing. Right. Um, how do you view, um, you know, where we should be leaning toward in the church now toward women? Do you have any views or perspectives on that right. that could be helpful in your research? I do. I'm glad that you asked that. I think that um, it's really important to know something the early church really got right. And that was men and women partnering 
Um, when I look at the art of the super early church, I've found men and women officiating, officiating communion at the altar together. Um, you see them hands raised and praised together. And really the earliest art is more likely to have men and women uh, mm. rather than just men or just women. And I think that is what can be regained here is acknowledging that we don't even have to know what gender differences are. I think there's a level of mystery there, right? Because the minute you say women are more nurturing, men are more organized, you know, you could all, everybody can think of people that aren't that way and nor should right. they have to be that way. But what we can say is whatever both bring to the table, we know that it images God and it's better when we have each other. Uh, I read a piece of research that was looking at boards after the Murdy, Bernie Madoff scandal. And somebody raised the question, you know, that was an all-male board and it was completely unethical. What if you had an all-female board? Would it be more ethical? And it turns out, nope. What was more ethical was a board with men and women on it. Uh, and that, like, that just resonates, right? You just know that, that there's something about that that's that's right. And so I think that one thing that we can agree on across views of women is that we need to, um, if we're going to guard the door against radical feminism, we also need to be guarding the door against radical misogyny and that we need to be focusing on, not on power, but on how we can together be imaging God. And that might even mean if you have a women's ministry, um, and looking at it, it's an all-female board. It's all women taught. But hey, you know, let's bring in some elders to look at our curriculum. If you have an all-male missions committee saying, hey, let's get some men and women partnering together on this. If you have men greeters at the door, you then add some women and vice versa, just mm -hmm. so that we are imaging together. Even if you do an altar call, instead of the, the elders will be up front, it's we have some men and women here that are available to talk to you. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, there's so much we can learn from each other and partner together. And that's the whole essence yeah. of, you know, Genesis 127 being yes. both made in God's image. And, um, you know, one of the things that in your book, you had this picture of a statue of um, Artemis. And I think you're referencing it. It looks, if you're just glancing at it, it looks like she has many breasts mm -hmm. in the statue. And yet, um, El Shaddai means like the many breasted one. Like there was something about that that gave you me that. Yo, girl, I didn't say that. Hey, y'all, <laughs> listeners, that was a that was a Lori Adams Brown observation. That wasn't was me. Good. That wasn't me. Thing. That was good. I know. It's like there is something God is mm. transcends gender, right? But being yes. female or being male and being human, all of us are created in God's image, and we bear God's image, and to only use. Uh, I mean, English is limited, right? So yes. I speak several other languages that, especially Asian languages, a couple ones I speak, they don't, like Indonesian, for example, doesn't have um, gendered pronouns. Right. Right. Um, what they do have is this beautiful pronoun that gives a hierarchy to a higher power. So it would even oh, be wow. used for a king or queen, wow. um, but it's not based on gender. So when you when you read the scripture or when you hear it based on gender, like we have done in English, it's limiting us. If we only yes. think of God as he, then we miss El Shaddai and we miss um, Ruach. We miss the spirit, which has a very you know female nature. Some yes. people believe the Holy Spirit is more female. I don't really know. Maybe I experience it that way because it helps me for some reason. But um, the point is a mother hand gathering her chicks as, you know, Jesus even quoted, right, is yes. um, is an image yeah. of 
of God. And so when we limit God or when we limit the expression of how the Holy Spirit can can gift us in the church to just male, wow, we're missing so much. And at that, when I saw that statue, it reminded me of, I wonder if there was a longing in these women in Ephesus for a God who would protect, for a God who would understand childbirth. You know, being born again is the most evangelical of all things, and it's a very <laughs> female metaphor, right? It is, <laughs> and, yes. And to just, I wish they could have known that. You know, I wish we could have had Nicodemus yeah. <laughs> with a woman there and them talking about Artemis and being like, but no, but God saves us and God helps you be born again and helps your babies be born. And in fact, God created your babies. And mm. um, and I, I saw that statue and I thought, I wonder if the women in Ephesus were just longing to know the fullness of God in that way. Um, mm. So how do you experience all those things about um, God transcending gender, what women and men both in the church need to hear and understand? And how do you explain all that? I want to address for a second first what you had to say about the statue, because one of the things that was unexpected in my translation work was to discover that Artemis was a female, but she was as worshipped by men as by women, maybe in the same way you might have men revering the Virgin Mary. Um, and men and women. So it's not, she isn't a goddess for women. Uh, she is a, a female goddess. And there's even the name of a man in the New Testament, uh, in New Testament, Artemis, spelled with an E-S at the end, which means follower of Artemis. So his parents named their boy after wow. the goddess. And I saw that a lot in the names. There are lots of boys and girl names that are named after the the goddess and certainly the silver workers that you see in the book of Acts, mm -hmm. they're men that are upset about people cutting into the trade. So I, I think that if there was a sense of, uh, of gender in that it's, it's universal, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's a universal need. I think a couple of things, uh, well, you pretty much said what I think, and that is God it's true that we use metaphors like God and uh, the Father and the Son, uh, but that doesn't mean uh, that God is male or more male than female. Uh, those are metaphors. And as you said, being born from above, childbirth is exclusively female. <laughs> right. um, there are there are not as many in, in the Old and New Testaments alike, but you know, metaphors and similes for God as a female. And I think that if you were going to do a drama and have the voice of God, it would be more accurate to have a male and female voice together be the voice of mm. God. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've found through art history is that many of us are so influenced by the Sistine Chapel's picture of God, the father as long white flowing beard, that if, if we tell people close your eyes and imagine it in the West, that's what they think of as the father. So if you picture God with a male body, which is heresy, by the way, yeah. <laughs> um, and then you have the son with a male body, which is not heresy, that's reality. Mm -hmm. But And then you have the Holy Spirit. Um, if you take away the Virgin Mary from your churches, as the Protestant church has largely done, and then you introduce the father as having a male body, your Christianity takes on a lot more maleness. But the, the Messiah absolutely had to be a male because if, if it had been a female with a virgin birth and the Holy Spirit, there, there would have been no male humanity as part of that equation in the incarnation. Mm. And, but, you know, all the humanity, on, his humanity comes from his mother's side, if you want to be funny about it. 
Um, but he has his divinity from eternity past. And so all the beauty of the incarnation is that men and women are fully represented in it. And the idea that the womb of a woman is the host of the host, that Christ does not abhor the virgin's womb, that uh, something that in many places is considered dirty, filthy, nasty, is what God himself chose to inhabit for nine months. And so that would suggest to me women could handle the elements if she could bear God and touch God. Uh, That would suggest something about women's dignity as well. Not only do we get our dignity from being made in God's image, but also in the fact that the son shows a, a woman's womb uh, for as the place where he would grow in the incarnation. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. We don't understand all the reasons, but when we think about it in that way, it definitely allows us as women, because we're two women speaking here today, and it allows us as women to understand that not only did Jesus listen to women and elevate them and go out of his way to listen to them and model for his disciples, uh, the male ones, that they should be listening to women and appear as the resurrected Lord before a woman so that she would tell the men all those things. I mean, if you haven't gotten the message, listen to women, you really are not paying attention. Not only that, and you know, his own mother, she was with him, you know, even in church history, well past the end, like stayed with the movement and is in a lot of the art and everything too. So, um, if, if we come away as Christians not understanding the, the importance of women and women's voices and women in this whole um, faith movement, um, then we're not really leaning into God or Jesus and the ways that they're teaching us. And so um, I appreciate that you've dug into Artemis um, as a way to help us understand scriptures that otherwise would make us scratch our head and feel inconsistent because she's a very important um piece of information in terms of understanding some of those really hard passages in the New Testament. So my last question for you, was there anything in your process of writing this book um, that you felt like you hoped um, when it gets into people's hands that they would um, take away or be transformed or changed by as they read your book? Absolutely. My prayer is that uh, it will set people free in the same way that I was bound to a limited view of what God's uh, vision for women was motherhood and being a wife are absolutely lovely, beautiful callings that are from God, but they're not the only callings. And that's where I was wrong. And when it didn't happen for me, God had other uses for my gifts in mind, but it took a, a long journey to even discover, oh, I'm not being a, rebe- in a, a rebel in wanting to share my gifts with the church. I, I actually have those from the spirit and I have an accountability to use them. So then the question of course had to be, how do I use them? And that's a whole different podcast, but, but what became uh, my number one desire out of all this was for other, not just women, but men and women to recognize that in God's multi-pattern book, there are lots and lots of different ways to do life and callings. And Mm -hmm. again, I, my biggest prayer is that for those who have a very narrow scope of what that looks like, that it will free them. I hope so too. And just give people, you know, curiosity because there's maybe what we've been told, some of us in certain denominations and certain churches from certain pulpits, isn't the whole picture. 
And there's a lot of fear sometimes that I come across with certain evangelicals that if they question, they're going to end up on a slippery slope and they're going to lose yeah. their faith. Yeah. But books like yours and so many books like yours show us that the longer we go deeper into art history and the artifacts and the the documents that actually we find so much beauty and it's even better than we were told. It's more wonderful than we imagined. And so yeah. I hope people read your book and find that journey to be a very special and beautiful one. Thank you so much for writing it. How can people find you and your writing and um, your book? So the big challenge is spelling my last name, Galan, G-L-A-H-N. So you can find me on my website and blog at sandragalan.com. You can find me on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it now, uh, the same way at, at Sandra Galan. Thanks for asking. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today. We're going to have you um, come back on for our Patreon and uh, our Difference Maker community. And I'm going to ask you another question about maybe any surprises or curveballs that you kind of encountered in your process of um, studying Artemis. I'm sure there may have been some, but yeah. (laughs) So uh, thanks for being on today. And please go buy Dr. Glan's book about nobody's mother so you can learn more about Artemis of the Ephesians. Thanks for being on today, Sandra. My pleasure. Well, what a fascinating conversation with some background of a historical situation that is going on culturally when parts of the New Testament, uh, this part of the Bible was written by, you know, when these epistles were being written by Paul the Apostle, St. Paul, to know that Artemis of the Ephesians was some... uh, very, very prominent background. And if you've read Ephesians, if you've heard sermons on Ephesians 5 and only heard them talk about particular verses, leaving out other ones, or if you've wondered why maybe you're not a Christian and you've wondered why some of your Christian friends believe some pretty bonkers things about women sometimes, now you'll understand some of the cultural background going on that really informs and enlightens what these passages probably mean and really help us dig deeper into what the meaning is probably, um, you know, referencing and how, (laughs) so I don't know if you've been seeing this funny, um, quote that's been going around lately. <laughs> it's slightly inappropriate. I'm going to, I'm going to say it here. I think there was a, a TikTok video somebody sent me this week and I got this um, sent to me. And then I also got the quote from it sent to me from a couple of different people. But the quote is, and you may have seen it going around, um, it's um, in the future, people are not going to know the difference between a butt dial and a booty call. And this is precisely why the Bible is hard to understand. <laughs> so um yeah the case in point our language what we're saying now in english what they said back in the 1600s in english back um what they were saying 2000 years ago in greek and all of the things that were going on in ephesus with artemis of the ephesians some of that is requiring us to really dig into the archaeology and the research and that's what dr glon has done um but it could help inform some of the language that was going on things people were saying, people were referencing as they were writing these um, words down, both in the New Testament scriptures and um, some of the writings outside of it. So, so glad for scholars like her who've done this work, um, because not only is language changing all the time, but um, the things that are happening in our cultures are changing. And that was certainly the case at the time of Ephesus. And understanding Artemis of the Ephesians is hugely important. So, 
once again, I've read about her and other books referencing versions, you know, what was going on in Ephesians 5, 21, all these different verses, uh, 22 and all of that, but also referencing, like she said, the situation that was going on when Paul was entering um, this town and why he was saying different things to the Ephesians than he was saying to the Corinthians because of the situations. So glad that she's written this book. So glad that she's spent the hours and uh, months and years researching this so that she could write it down for us in um, a way that we can understand it. And I really do hope you get your hands on this book because I find it all so fascinating. If you care about uh, reading the scriptures at all, um, or you're a person who's just interested in archaeology and uh, what cultures were like back in the day, I think you'll find this book pretty fascinating. So pick it up, Dr. Sandra Glahn, Nobody's Mother. Um, Just a fascinating book about Artemis of the Ephesians. So let me know what you think. I really enjoyed reading it, and I hope that you do too. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.